introduction to um, your background and your um, interest and passion in, in um, uh, trauma survivors and trauma-informed services and um, being an advocate for people as well. So I'll let you take it away. Sure. So I'm Scarlett and I'm a dissociative survivor of complex trauma. So um, I sort of describe myself as a survivor of all of the above, which probably isn't fair because there'll be things that I, you know, everyone's experience is unique. There'll be things I haven't experienced, but I, um, from infancy and even in utero, I grew up with domestic and family violence um, and direct uh, violence, child abuse, um, including organized child sexual abuse. Um, and then that sort of uh, abuse sort of begets circumstances of abuse. So I um, became homeless at 16 and then I experienced a lot more sexual violence and abuse after that. And I would also say that um, I'm not just a survivor of that uh, kind of interpersonal violence, but also of the sort of systems abuse that so many survivors experience. So um, uh, a lot of people along the way um, supported me and um, I, I'll forever be grateful, but also a lot of the people whose job it is to ostensibly help people like me really, really let me down and made things a lot worse. So, um, you know, child protection system, the housing system, the welfare system, um, the criminal justice system, the courts, um yeah I I it's a very very common experience um that uh you know those things can compound re-traumatize and even traumatize people that are um trying to recover from from their initial experiences that led them to those services um so that's a that's a little bit of background and um I've been working for five years at the University of Sydney as what some what's sometimes called a lived experience or a peer researcher. I like to call it a survivor researcher. I've been contributing to um, a couple of projects um, looking at stigmatized adaptations to trauma. Yes, how I would describe it. Um, and I've also been uh, I fell into being a um, an advocate from from the survivor community um over the last 10 years I just started taking myself to um talks and conferences and rallies and all sorts of things and that led to collaborating with a couple of different groups so I've um worked with uh, the Blue Knot Foundation for example over the years and I'm now um an appointee of the Survivor College of the National Center for Action on Child Sexual Abuse and I'm on the board of directors of the Grace Tame Foundation. And I'm uh, working with the webinar committee. So that's like the training committee for the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation. You are a little powerhouse. And um, I just, <laughs> I'm always in awe of your um, work and your experience. And yeah, I, I, I can't believe all the stuff you do. You're amazing. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and I know that you do it out of passion and, and um, just an internal conviction of wanting to help others and, you know, help yourself and see some more justice in the world and more care in the world. Well, that's how I would describe what I see in you anyway. 
Um, so yeah, amazing, thank you. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have a chat, because we have lots of chats and we have done, and I always love chatting to you about about um, the world of healing and mental health and, and trauma recovery. Um, and, you know, to, to, to share with our yoga teachers and yoga professionals what you um, think is important when it comes to um, being in relationship as a service provider um, or a consumer of a service um, for for people that have had you know trauma trauma experiences of trauma and, and are healing from trauma, so I I would love to sort of just hear what your thoughts on what do you, what are the sort of most important things for you when it comes to being in relationship with service providers. Yeah, uh, there's there's so much to say, so I'm going to try and make my thoughts organized, and we'll see. <laughs> how how That's a big question uh, yeah. yeah um I think the the first thing for people to know is that you know trauma happens in relationship and it's healed in relationship and that's true even of um you know really severe physical or sexual violence um I have never ever heard any survivor not say that it's the psychological and relational um consequences of that violence that is what really uh impacts them and haunts them them the most um which is not mm. to downplay the physical or other other impacts but um yeah i i think that that is a a really good framework for people to understand um yeah i think um Friends and loved ones of mine and I, when we encounter um, a service provider that's who who we feel is is trauma informed, um, first of all, they they tend to be the sort of person that you um, that you would want in your life otherwise, like a kind of warm person that you'd get along with, uh, that you feel mm. is. Sometimes I'm dancing around it, but sometimes we say, yeah, they're trauma-informed. They're not a dickhead. <laughs> they're just a caring person. Yeah. Um, but I guess, I guess uh, you know, I guess there's a maybe a myth out there that I want to, to start with, which is that some people will say, well, what's the use of an individual healer or practitioner being trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive when they're operating in a system like one of the systems I mentioned earlier, for example, that's not very trauma-informed, not very trauma-sensitive. Um, mm. People would suggest that that there's no point, that that's not, that that's not um, going to make a difference. But I really disagree with that. I think that um, while obviously we want... Um, systems and services uh and and the community and the culture and in, in in general to move towards being more trauma sensitive or trauma informed i think individual healers and service providers um embodying these practices of safety consent and choice and empowerment and trust uh they tend to stand out and make an enormous difference for that person accessing the service um 
one, one way to highlight what a big difference that can make is that when a person is coming to you, uh, maybe as a yoga teacher to try and explore that as an avenue for healing, the things that have happened to them may be in the past, but their traumatization isn't necessarily in the past. Uh, it isn't necessarily over because like I said, um, even if the interpersonal abuse or violence that person experienced may have been long ago, they may not yet have safety. And that may be because um, they have this kind of precarity that a lot of victim survivors suffer um, as a result of that violence. Like they might be a woman who's um, fled an abusive relationship and they are really struggling. They don't have um, like financial or housing security, for example, or it might be that they have faced some of that institutional betrayal and re-traumatization that I mentioned. So they could be, uh, you know, going to a dozen appointments a week, um, trying to access services in order to survive, in order to get healthy and and or to tread water. Um, but and they may, it's likely that in at least some of those services, they are facing the opposite of those principles of choice and empowerment and trust. Um, so if you can be somebody in whom they can have what they call a therapeutic relationship, you know, mm. then mm. that can make all the difference in the world um, in terms of mitigating some of that traumatization that's going on elsewhere and and also just being one place in which they can um relax and really be themselves uh, I think it can be helpful to look at trauma in a slightly technical way uh but I think it'll make sense so some mm. people some people in the field, uh, like Elizabeth Howell, she's a psychotherapist and an author in the United States, and she she defines trauma as that which causes dissociation. Mm. So to put that in a way that I think people could understand, when something is life-threatening, self-threatening, annihilating and overwhelming, um, in order to survive it, uh, it's it's almost it's too much for our, our mind, our self and our system to process. And so a part or parts of that experience become unknowable because they're unbearable. Um, and so, you know, they call they call dissociation a disorder of non-realization, which just means it can't it can't be integrated, it can't be known. And, you, you know, people might wonder like, oh, well, what has this got to do with the average survivor? Isn't this a really um, rare and extreme form of traumatization? But that's not true. The Blue Knot Foundation and their uh, award-winning research has shown that um, any, uh, any complex trauma that is uh, chronic uh, and, inter and interpersonal and often beginning in early life, uh, any trauma of that nature, which is the majority of trauma um, mm. that people experience in our society, is causes some kind of dissociation or other. And that could be dissociation um, in the with regards to the what's happened to to people. So that people are sort of familiar with this idea of um, traumatic am amnesia or um, 
dissociation as an altered state of experience where people are um you know not able to recall uh very well or not able to uh integrate what happened to them their memories of what happened to them may be fragmented they may be very focused on little sensory fragments a smell of something here uh, a sound of something here rather than having a like a neat chronological story but there's actually an even more common uh, and perhaps even more important um, side of dissociation because mm. to be really clear what I'm what I'm saying here is not oh it's important for people to be able to recall what happened to them and to put it into a chronological narrative that may not be part of someone's healing at all and in fact demanding that someone tell their story and what happened and, you know, relate everything that happened to them could be quite um, unhelpful, could be traumatizing in the wrong circumstances. So that's not what I'm suggesting at all. What I'm trying, what I'm illustrating is actually about relationship. So Mm. a way to put that is imagine you're a child and you can't fend for yourself, let's say you're two years old, but you could be any age of a child. You're two years old and your whole world is your primary caregivers. You have to rely on them for sustenance and for um, safety and for shelter and warmth and all of that, but also for um, connection, for human connection, which we know um, babies will die without. Mm. So if those caregivers for example, are neglectful or abusive, then the child is in what uh, war trauma and attachment therapists call a double bind. They're in a double bind because they need the parents, but the parents are also threatening and harmful. So what is this child going to do? Well, uh, thankfully, we've been you know, evolving and adapting for hundreds of millennia, and we have really sophisticated ways of managing that. The child will uh, sort of split. This is not their choice. This is just what happens in the brain and the nervous system. Their their experience will become split off where it's almost like if you imagine, say that child's going to daycare. When they're in daycare, they might be a very happy, playful child for the most part and able to cuddle up to parents and to, to the caregivers and relate to them and whatever, play with other children, all sorts of normal developmental stuff that you want to see and then when they're at home they might be very withdrawn they might be very quiet they might be uh they you you might hear people say oh this baby's so well behaved they never cry Mm -hmm. (laughs) that um because or similarly they might be able to um turn towards their mummy or daddy but also uh, sort of change orientation to mommy or daddy at the drop of a hat because their system, you know, is picking up a sense of threat. And so they're yeah. able to sort of split off. And the, the, the point of kind of going into this and explaining this detail of highlighting, I'm sort of highlighting how, you know, think of it this way, the interpersonal environment that we grow, grow up in becomes the intrapsychic environment. So so a person who grows up without abuse and violence and neglect will have ordinary levels of unknowing. So we might not want to know this about ourselves or that about ourselves, but, but, but for the most part, 
um, people that grow up without the, that interference will be able to have all parts of themselves present in relationship. Mm. Whereas someone who grew up with abuse and neglect. The good, the bad and the ugly, right? That's exactly right. The good, the bad and the ugly. All parts of us, you know, were welcome when we were young um, and weren't having to adapt to survive that abuse. Whereas someone that did have to adapt to survive that abuse um, even if the abuse was long ago, it's sort of like someone's put on like a really big life jacket as a young person and now they're no longer like whitewater rafting off a cliff down a waterfall. They're, they're like on land and everything could be, everything in the world might genuinely be safe now, but they're struggling to walk because they're waddling under the weight of this giant life jacket, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's a good analogy. <laughs> so I'm kind of mixing metaphors there, but I guess mm. what I want, what maybe people could be helpful for people to know is that that's why the primacy of the relationship is what it's all about. Mm. Um, trauma is all about shame. Uh, it's all about, uh, you know, a, abuse kind of, especially when it begins in early life, becomes internalized by the child um, as, as shame and, and self-rejection and, and self-loathing and those kinds of things. And, and even people that experience abuse primarily as adults, um, for example, victims of domestic violence can, can relate to this uh, idea of, of shame. And so that's why the relationship is a site of healing. And if I had to kind of summarize trauma-informed, um, a trauma-informed approach in one word, I think I would borrow the idea from um, the Dissociation Societies, um, Michael Salter and Heather Hall, who have written about um, dignity-promoting practice. Mm, I love that. Yeah, the idea of dignity, uh, creating and providing and supporting a person's sense of dignity as being an antidote and a remedy and, as their research shows, a way, uh, a prevention tool mm. for, uh, uh, because it's, it's, it's the opposite of, of shame, of a shaming mm. environment. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And a few things in there that came to mind as you were speaking. Um, you know, one of the things when I discovered yoga for myself and then in working with people, the one thing I love about the practice of yoga is that it doesn't require the retelling of stories. And, you know, I, I often think, you know, with some, some clients of, mine or just that that if some if someone can't speak about a an event to me I think well that's because it was unspeakable it was it was unspeakable the pain's unspeakable the circumstances are unspeakable so let's not try and make someone speak about it you know I so agree I think um I think that's a really common like myth uh that that we need that what trauma survivors need is to recount what happened to them and there'll be this catharsis and that'll be what what's healing 
Um, I think in a, some circumstances from time to time, it is true that uh, if a trauma survivor, especially if they're feeling a lot of shame about something that they went through, if they can mm. uh, share that with a compassionate witness and that compassionate witness can validate that, you know, it wasn't their fault, they didn't do anything wrong, that shouldn't have happened to them, that that can be valuable. But I would say for the most part, yeah. we way overemphasize this idea of, of retelling uh, the narrative of what, what happened. If that ar- arises organically, fine, but it's exactly not, it shouldn't yeah. be. People shouldn't yeah. be made to feel that that's what it's all about because I think a better way to think about it is it's not that necessarily that we need to retell what happened. It's that we need to re- gently invite back in to knowing the parts of self, the parts yeah. of ourself that were exiled, the parts of ourselves that we yeah, because perhaps they hold mm. those memories or perhaps they hold that terrible shame or perhaps they mm. hold um, responses or reactions that we had to uh, trauma or abuse that we're not proud of, um, whether rightly or wrongly ashamed of, uh, I would say wrongly. And mm. it's it's not so much about uh, you know, oh, if we had our story straight, we would be healed. It's like, no, um, our we were violated and betrayed in relationship and that's affected our relationship in inside ourselves. So that's what I think yoga can do. Yeah. That's what it's done for me over many years. It's, it's about um, being that... Um, compassionate witnessing accepting uh or rather occupying this compassionate witnessing accepting place in myself where I can accept and invite in and honor all parts of me Mm -hmm. uh, present and past all parts of me unconditionally so that they can put their weapons down and yeah, take beautiful. a break. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Have a rest. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. That that's that's my experience of yoga too. And that that's as a as a yoga teacher and therapist, that's that's my hope that I'm I'm helping to guide people to that place exactly that you've just described, that inner that inner place of compassionate witnessing, that benevolent witness within that can, yeah, witness and... When when you say guiding people towards that, I I really love that and it, I'm again reminded of um, some of the, the neurobiology of, um, of the child and, uh, and, you know, I think it was Winnicott, the, the British uh, psychoanalyst, who said that, you know, there is no such thing as a child, only a child and a mother. Mm. They are one or, or the child and their caregiver. Mm. And I think that, you know, there's a lot, we have a lot of resistance in our culture to recognizing the true vulnerability and interdependence of our, uh, of our species, uh, you know, of us mm. as human beings. Um, and resisting that causes a lot of, um, 
dysfunction and 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 horrible uh, experiences, you know, of hypervigilance and and disconnect, yeah, lack of safety, right? lack of safety. Yeah. So 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 there's a an, an I'm not sure how you describe it, a neurodevelopmental um, practitioner Dan Siegel who um, describes an example of this so beautifully where um, so when the parent says expresses for example with their voice with their facial features when they look at their baby I'm delighted their their expression their voice their manner of speaking their body language it's it's expressing the message I'm delighted and when they when the parents express that I'm delighted without words with their body and their voice and their tone and everything what the child internalizes and I'm talking about an infant the infant internalizes, I'm delightful. I'm delightful. Exactly. That's what yeah. they internalize. When mm. parents, uh, if their body language and tone and all of that is more often than not uh, expressing to the child, I'm stressed, I'm angry, I'm aggressive, uh, I am, you know, whatever, the, the, these sorts of things, then the, the child um, internalizes, I cause stress, uh, I cause these bad things to happen to me, um, I cause uh, I cause pain and so I'm a source of pain and suffering. And that that's yeah. not, that's not a metaphorical, you know, idea or a theory that that's mm. that's our present understanding of of the neurodevelopment child's uh, architecture but luckily we also know about neuroplasticity and we also know that um, even if someone grows up with very disorganized attachment which is just another way of understanding dissociation by the way even if someone Mm. with very disorganized attachment earned secure attachment with a safe benevolent other is where healing happens because that that warmth that safety that reliability um the shared power so collaboration Mm. in the between the person and the practitioner that's where they can really start to internalize in their nervous system something new and different yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah and in and in the yoga room um, or you know, putting this into the yoga context, as the teacher student or teacher participant, there's that that, that that dynamic that you know, in a sense, the teacher's the authoritative kind of figure in that room. So so important to be um, embodying you know these these principles that you're talking about, and I often think. You know, my job is to, as a teacher, one is to kind of really care because I do care, but <laughs> to really show I care. So that sense of delight, um, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I, I unconditionally caring for my students or my participants um, or my clients. And that to me is reflecting back that sort of hopefully that sense of being worthy of being cared for all the parts of of whatever shows up in the in the in the yoga room is my job is to unconditionally um accept and and care for that person in all those states so yeah that that's how I sort of see it 
and to remember that in that teacher-student relationship there is that there is that power imbalance and so it's my job as a teacher to keep reassuring and um, sending all those signals that actually I'm, I'm there to facilitate or to guide this participant into their own into their own journey um, and find their own that sense of self-empowerment too. I think you put that really well and I think it reminds me of another myth that I sometimes see out there which is some people you know they identify this uh, power imbalance like you mentioned that there's always going to be if you have a, a leader or an authority figure and then people that are following them and they say okay we should squash all hierarchy we should just eliminate all of it because it's inherently unsafe and and let, let's do that and I've never seen that work in, in uh, practically but I also think it it could be missing the point because um, parents can be abusive should we just eliminate parents like I think they're sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater there because while it's true that an authority figure can be authoritarian and they can impose their will on others, yes. an author- a, a benevolent authority figure can be a source of enormous safety. Exactly. It can be a yeah. place where people, it can allow people to surrender, mm-hmm. to feel vulnerable, to feel mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. someone else right now, while mm-hmm. I'm in this yoga class with Kylie, Kylie Mm -hmm. is taking care of things I can just let Kylie uh, we've developed a relationship over time and I can just let you take care of things I know that you know if someone knocks at the door and I get a little jump yeah hypervigilant Mm -hmm. jump but I can soothe myself because I can I know Kylie will go answer the door and she'll handle it and she'll make sure that you know it's all fine nothing bad's happening exactly Um, and, re- and, you know, having these reparative experiences is so valuable in a variety of contexts, and that includes the, the safe, benevolent authority figure. When we look at children, children need authority figures. Mm. They need adults who take responsibility and safeguard them, and that's all that being an authority mm. figure means. It means responsibility. And there, there's mm. something really, really beautiful and healing for people for adults to have somebody else take take a bit of responsibility off their shoulders for 20 minutes or an hour yeah 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 yes and that's that sort of positive um you know being a female um I see that as I'm you know trying to role model or try and give that experience that some people I know might not have had as of a unconditional mother figure like that archetype of an unconditional mother figure that yeah overseeing everyone and one of my favorite things in teaching yoga is when I feel like I've popped everybody to sleep in shavasana (laughs) I feel like the (laughs) I feel like the protector. I'm just watching all my little babies. <laughs> Not really, but I'm just the protector. I've helped everyone get into a deep relaxation and I'm letting people hang out in that space and I'm there keeping watch of that space. And as you said, like, yeah, sometimes the door, someone does come in or there's a loud noise outside. And But if I stay regulated and I can 
you know, deal with that situation for everybody. But just, you know, people, as you said, might get a bit of a jump, but then they quickly go back into relaxation. And, and that's such a beautiful learning, I think, in itself, isn't it? To have that experience that someone's actually taking care of me and looked after me in that moment. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I'm sure you n- people might know about the the idea of a window of tolerance in, in the nervous system and that, you know, it can be helpful to gently in, in the right, with the right relationship, um, gently expand that window of tolerance over time. And that that's, that's an example of that. Mm. Yeah. Experience. You have that moment of hypervigilance and fear or, or something, but then you're able to come back into safety mm-hmm. um, back into that ventral vagal or that parasympathetic place mm-hmm. where you feel uh you know in connected with that yoga teacher and with perhaps with your classmates if you've gotten to know them mm-hmm. uh you know just over time and then uh you can ex- you know return to that safety and that's that's so healing and beautiful because it's also um we certainly don't want to um demonize any nervous system response as you said because there's you know every every part of self every response is welcome um and you know we we develop these responses as as people with complex trauma histories because they were they were survival strategies they were survival tools at one time or other Yeah, and I think that's, um, I just think that's always so important to reiterate, isn't it? They're actually beautiful, wise adaptations. They're survival. It's survival, and you said it so beautifully right at the beginning. I could not even begin to explain it the way you explained it, but I think it's so important to remember that, that, that this was all conditioning to survive it's not bad it's not wrong it's I don't see things like that as a disorder it might be you know not a pleasant way to live and as you said before still got that life jacket on it's really hard to walk around on land in that now but but it's just I think so important for for, for that recognition of it being an adaptation response that was vital and incredibly intelligent and wise at the time that's that's exactly right I think that's well put and I I do just want to come back to that idea of the the mother or the authority the benevolent authority figure who's that overseer and protector and the holder of space I think Mm. another thing that maybe yoga therapists and yoga teachers want to want to know or, or might have to know is that um when you model that people can internalize that for themselves over time and then be that protective space holding mothering part to all parts within themselves we all have parts of ourselves we all have parts that you know they're all there they're all trying to protect us and help us survive but they may have uh competing ideas about how to get that yeah. done it might be a part of you that thinks this is so stressful. I should just eat three liters of ice cream or I should drink some alcohol or whatever it may be. And I'm not, mm. I'm certainly not demonizing that, but there mm. might be other parts that want to, that think, oh, maybe I could phone a friend. And then another part thinks, 
oh, I don't want to bother that friend with my stupid problems or I'm so annoying or whatever. But if you have, if you over time are able to internalize a therapeutic relationship, a, a caring, witnessing other, then that helps you be able to do that for yourself and be kind mm. to yourself. And it's all about accepting all the parts of you. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Very, very true. Yeah. And then there's a different way of being towards yourself and a different narrative towards yourself and a different, yeah, pattern in there to tap into as a resource, isn't it? Beautiful. I could talk to you forever and ever and ever and ever about, <laughs> about these topics and other topics as well. But I will not take any more of your time. And thank you so, so much for sharing your knowledge, experience, wisdom um, and yourself with us. Um, I think it's really valuable always what you have to say. Um, and I think it's really valuable for our um, yoga professionals to, to get some wisdom and um, insights from you as well. So thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Pleasure.